You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Last week, Pastor Dan led us through the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs, which urge us that if we are going to live in wisdom, we need to pursue God, God himself. And I found that was a really um, timely message for the start of a new year. And so this morning, we're going to look at another text that urges us to be wise by considering certain things that are true about God and certain things that are true about us. So let's uh, begin this morning by reading Psalm 90. We'll pray and we'll spend some time in it together. Psalm 90. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, sorry, I skipped. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that amid what seems sometimes the chaos of this world, we are not left to guess about you, but that you have communicated with us in your word. You've spoken to us and revealed yourself so that we can know you. Because Jesus said to know you is eternal life. And that's what you made us for. 
And so, Lord, as we read your word, we meet you in its pages, and we thank you. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning that you would help us to submit our hearts to your word. Uh, I pray, uh, Lord, that my words would be clear, that they would not in any way obscure or spoil the beauty and simplicity of what you've written. Lord, would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts, that we would understand what we read, and that we would have the humility to obey it. Because those of us who belong to you know how sweet it is to be confronted by your word. We know how sweet it is to repent and to find grace. And so, uh, Lord, give us grace as we uh, read this morning. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, the heading or the, the subscript of Psalm 90, which I almost skipped, uh, it says uh, that this psalm was written by Moses, the man of God. Um, this is the only psalm that lists Moses as its author. And so it's probably, as far as we know, the oldest psalm in our Bible. Um, you may not think of Moses as a psalmist, but he actually recorded at least two other songs in Scripture. One of them is in Exodus 15, and the other one is in Deuteronomy uh, 32, possibly 33. Um, and yet this psalm, Psalm 90, is labeled a prayer of Moses. And you'll notice that in this psalm, each of the sentences are directed to God. So it's a prayer. And so in that way, Psalm 90 is teaching us how to pray. Um, in the first two-thirds of this psalm, roughly, we're going to talk to God about him and about ourselves. And in the last third, we're going to learn how to ask God for things in our weakness and in the trouble of life. So uh, let's jump, jump right in. In verses 1 through 2, we start out by acknowledging something true about God, that God is eternal. It says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Um, we just came through Christmas, and you probably were walking through a store at some point, and you heard uh, the song, Oh, There's No Place Like Home for the Holidays, right? Um, uh, our culture praises being mobile and going out and seeing the world and getting lots of experiences of you know, you get out of high school, you go off to college somewhere else, then you go off somewhere exotic and get a cool job, right? And we love the idea of being mobile, but we still relate with the idea of coming back to somewhere that we call home, somewhere that feels familiar and is a place of safety and security. And that's what the word dwelling place means. It means home. Um, it, the word in the Old Testament can refer to the dwelling place of God, but most often it actually refers to the dens of wild animals. Like, okay? But think about it. A wild animal den is in a remote place. It's a place where the animal can go to escape, where it won't be disturbed by human activity. It's a place of safety and security. And you think about, for Moses' own generation, the people of Israel had not had a place to call their own, at least physically, land-speaking. Um, uh, Abraham was nomadic, and as the, the people of Israel grew, they uh, grew a lot of their time in slavery in Egypt. So where was their sense of belonging and security? Even for us, our sense of home may be elusive and, and hard to feel like we've ever reached a place that we can call home, because maybe mom and dad have to sell the family farm, or maybe they die, 
and the house has to be sold. Or maybe all of your relatives move away from what used to be home. Or maybe a developer came in, and what used to be home is now, uh, oh, what are the storage units. Yeah, they're always storage units. Um, it's a, a plot of, of storage units. Um, um, there might be some personal history behind that. <laughs> so, um, they, never mind. <laughs> I'll swear. Okay. Um, they put a, a, a unit of uh, storage units behind my grandmother's old house, so yeah. Um, but uh, uh, our, our sense of home may be elusive. Maybe you're in the military, right? And that's, it's hard to feel a sense of home when you're moving all the time. Um, and so where was Israel to find security and solidness? And where are we supposed to find security in a world that's always changing? Well, the answer is in God himself, because he never changes. He's the solid thing that we can hang on to. And so verse 2 tells us why. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before God had ever created the world, God was himself. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't missing something. He didn't create us because he needed something to do. He was the same God in eternity past as he will be in eternity future. And these verses have been familiar and precious to Christians for thousands of years, and for good reason. Because they assure us that whatever happens in this life, whatever happens in the universe, God is who he is, period. And that never changes. And he is our home. And that truth, right here in verses 1 through 2, that God is eternal, that God is the ultimate environment against which the tiny speck of human history happens, is going to be the crucial truth that's important for us to process everything else that we have to process in the psalm, which is realities of life. So hang on to that in your mind. In verses 3 through 11, then, we're going to, as we pray, we've acknowledged something true about God himself, and now we're going to acknowledge something true about ourselves, that our lives are short and fragile. Uh, Verse 3 reminds us that our bodies are made of dust. Someday we're all going to die, and we're going to return to ordinary matter. Um, With, of course, the exception of those who are alive at the coming of Christ. But for the rest of us, we are planning on dying. The part of verse 3 that might jar us a little bit is that it's very clear that God is the one who makes this happen. Um, he's, He's the active one in the sentence. He says, return to dust. Uh, we die because God decreed it. God who, who told Adam, by the sweat of your face you will eat your food till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you will return, in Genesis 3. And that's why after generation after generation rises and falls, all of them returning to dust. And yet for God, the passing of time is like nothing. For him, maybe 40 generations of human history, a thousand years, is like yesterday. It's like 24 hours. Or Better yet, it's like a watch in the night, which is like four hours. God sees all the generations of human history at an effortless glance. What seems long to us is not to him. All of our generations cycle up and down, up and down, but God does not cycle. God is eternal. And so uh, the next couple of verses describe uh, each generation in three pictures. The first is 
that we are swept away like a flood that sweeps away everything in its path irresistibly and without exception. You can't argue with a flood. You can't opt out. Say, uh, excuse me, floods come and wreak their damage. Um, Second, he describes human life like a dream. Dreams sometimes seem solid in the moment, right? We've all had one of those dreams where you wake up and you tell your you know, spouse or your brother or a friend, you say, man, that seems so real. You know, like, I woke up and I had to ask my spouse, did that happen? They're like, no. Um, or, or something like, you know, you're about to get an award at work and you can see your smi- the smiling face of your boss. They've got a cake and you're walking up on the stage to receive that award and bask in your glory and all of a sudden you wake up, the alarm's going off. You're like, huh. And then what do you do? You forget the dream. Because it doesn't matter. It was, it was there for a second and it's gone. And you move on. You move on with your life. Um, the third image is of a tuft of grass. Under the cool of the night, maybe with a heavy dew, you can imagine a tuft of grass in Palestine kind of thriving for a little bit. It gets just enough moisture for what it needs. It rises from obscurity toward the light, a proud priest, a piece of greenery, It has its day in the sun, except that the sun kills it, and saps its moisture out and withers it. And that's the story of the piece of grass. In one day, it had a day of glory, and then it was gone. And it's kind of like us in the shortness of our lives. We may look glorious for a little bit, but then we're gone. Um, In 2014, there's a guy named Jared Wilson, who's at uh, Midwestern Seminary, Uh, He wrote an article uh, titled, you'll love the title, You Will Die and So Might Your Dreams. Um, And he he says this, They are going to put you in a box and put the box on the ground and throw dirt on your face and then go back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) Here's the point. As great as you can make yourself, as many wonderful things as you can accomplish in your lifetime, even religious things, it will all be a blip on the radar of eternity. You will become dust. The worms will eat you. Statistically speaking, since most of us will never accomplish such great things that history will laud throughout the ages, memory of us will start fading with our grandchildren. And our great-grandchildren will likely not have any clue who we are. Brothers and sisters, our lives are short and fragile. And yes, there's more to the story than just that quote from the article. There's more to it. But we're not there yet. The psalm isn't there yet. But why would our lives be short? Why would God put an end to people's lives like that? Well, verses 7 through 8 tell us why. It says, We are brought to an end by your anger. And by your wrath, we are dismayed. The word dismayed is kind of like, it's used elsewhere of soldiers who lose their guts. Uh, not, um, they lose their, their fight, their bravery in battle, and they, they run, they're scattered, right? You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so Moses teaches us that we need to acknowledge two things to God here. First is that we acknowledge that the reason that we die is because of God's judgment on our sin. 
Remember, this is what God had told Adam and Eve. In the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Romans 3.23 says the, way, the payment for sin is death. Romans 5.12 says sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And along with sin came pain and suffering and natural disasters and everything that is broken about our world, under which creation groans, Romans 8 says. Death plagues us, Moses says, because sin plagues us. So we acknowledge that we die because we sin. And yet, secondly, we acknowledge that God's sentence of death on us is just because God sees our sin. God sees my sin. Everything about me is open to God. We know the verse from Hebrews 4.13. It says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all of them are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 90 says, Our sins are as if they are laid out in the presence of God, out on the table, nothing hidden from him. His presence is like a lamp, the light of his presence. Um, light there is, is like a, a light source, like a lamp or a, we would think, a flashlight shining on the very parts of our lives that we would like to keep hidden from others. We acknowledge that God's knowledge of our sin is accurate. He has seen the parts of us that nobody else has seen, our seething anger that perhaps we could hide, or perhaps our jealousy, my refusal to be content with any of God's blessings on me. God sees my hidden indulgence of lust. God sees all the time I spend ignoring him, disregarding his presence and his authority, idolatry. Do, do, do my friends and neighbors see my idolatry in my heart? No, but God sees that. It may be hidden from people, but it's not hidden from God. So God sees my life from the vantage point of truth. He sees accurately, but he also sees it from a vantage point of holiness, the light of his holiness. First John says uh, that God is light, and him in him is no darkness at all. So this means that God, when God pronounces a sentence of death for humanity, God is not being some kind of unpredictable father who explodes first and asks questions later. That's not what God is like. God is not some kind of crooked cop who cracks down on people just because they look sketchy or because they fit a profile no, God knows us completely. The fact that we are dying is not a mistake. It's not some kind of injustice. If you, if you, I think of it this way. Adam passed a bill. Adam and Eve passed a bill through their little two-person Congress of autonomy against God. And that vote has been ratified time and time again by us. Right? We share in Adam's death because we share in Adam's sin. And Moses teaches us to confess this to God. Verse 9, all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Um, I think it help, might help to consider something for a moment here. 
Um, what does it mean that we pass all of our days, or all of our days pass away under God's wrath? It might seem wrong to us, because we know from Romans 8 that those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, right? It's a precious truth. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are alive or dead, we might live with him. Okay, so we know in Christ, we do not face God's wrath or eternal death, but rather, we will always be with the Lord. So, do Christians live under God's wrath? No. So what's Moses saying? What do we do with this verse? Um, I think what he's doing is simply restating the point from verse 7. Um, the verb in verse 9 for pass away could also be translated to fade or to decline, uh, like the fading of daylight. Uh, Jeremiah 6.4 uses it that way, about the fading of a day. And so he's saying that our lives fade because we live in a world cursed by sin. On the other hand, we can also consider Moses' personal context. He probably wrote this psalm while moving through the wilderness with a whole generation of people who were dying off and not able to enter the promised land because of unbelief. They lived every day in the consequence of sin, of the discipline of God. And so uh, you, you can imagine... Uh, for Moses, maybe this really hit home in a very specific way. Um, verse 10 says this, For the years of our life are 70. Maybe if you're strong, 80. Yet their span, their, their total amount, is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So notice three things about life here in verse 10. First of all, 70 to 80 years goes fast. Uh, perhaps you're ambivalent about New Year's. Maybe you're ambivalent about uh, birthdays because it's just every time it ticks by, you think, oh, there goes another one. Or I thought I just had the last one. Um, I know I probably seem young to some of you. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not young, but um, I'm past the halfway point to 70 and I'm almost to the halfway point to 80. I'm old enough to feel like time is slipping through my fingers. I'm old enough to know that when people say, well, the older you get, the faster it goes, I know exactly what they're talking about. Um, this year, uh, my old, our oldest daughter just turned 11. And I thought, how did that even happen? Like, and if we have her until, let's say, at minimum, she's 18, we're way past halfway, right? Time really does fly. But secondly, 70 to 80 years are not enough. When you're 15, 70, 80 sounds like a zillion years. By age 40, it sounds like uh, that's not enough. Uh, verse 3, or sorry, point 3. Uh, those 70 to 80 years are hard and sometimes feel futile. Sometimes you might say, well, have I really accomplished anything? Or like, I'm, I'm now 37. 37? I think so. Um, like, <laughs> have I turned 38 yet? I don't know. Um, I'm 37. What do I have to show for it? Am, am, am I really doing anything of lasting value, or is everything just kind of churning? Um, if, if, if this psalm feels like Ecclesiastes, I, I think it is. 
it's kind of like Ecclesiastes. I don't have time to preach Ecclesiastes, but... Um, and then, um, and, and sometimes uh, they are filled with hardship. Everybody's life, everybody's 70 to 80 years, or however, if you make it that far, is filled with many instances of sadness, suffering, and hardship. Um, maybe you could think throughout your, your past year. And I hope you can point to a lot of ways in which God has been gracious to you and blessed you. I know Sarah and I can, and, and we've talked about some of those. But also, in our past year, there were some dark nights of crying out to God for mercy and strength. And I, I, I know that there were times like that for many of you. Our 70 to 80 years are short and hard. There are people who live longer than 80, but their lives are not easier or more fruitful. You remember Jacob, at the end of his life, was taken by Joseph to Egypt. He's talking to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you know, says hi, and Jacob says, um, the days of my life have been few and evil. <laughs> few and hard. It wasn't enough, and it was really sad. Uh, Moses lived to 120 years also. But even he, at the end of his life, couldn't enter Canaan. He could just look at it because of his own foolishness. Life is hard. And so as Moses is wrapping up this section, he asks a question. Verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? You put it this way, Who really grasps the full force of God's hatred of sin? Who among us? Nobody. Why? Because we don't fear God like we ought. That knowledge of God's wrath would come with fear of God. They go together, but none of us gets any of that perfectly. Most days we just go on going about our own business. None of us has really, truly overdone a correct fear of God. And we often don't connect that God's anger at sin has any connection with the brokenness of our world. Um, in, instead, we, we just kind of walk through life, often just not really thinking deeply about God or about ourselves or anything at all. Um, there's a 17th century French philosopher, uh, Pascal, and he has this little collection of scraps that somebody assembled after he died called his pensée, or thoughts, and Pascal suggested that if we were forced to sit quietly in a room, eventually up from our heart, in our thoughts, would come all these things, these weighty things of importance like eternity and God, death, guilt. And so in order to avoid this, we fill our lives with distraction. He said the only thing that consoles our miseries is distraction, yet that is the greatest of our miseries. And uh, there's, there's a lot more to, to go with that. But the point is that we have not really reckoned with the holiness of God or with our mortality. So what do we do in the light of our own mortality? We've gone through this section. Um, is the answer to just despair and say, well, that was really depressing? Um, no, Moses is going to teach us to pray in light of our mortality. And there's a whole category of psalms that does this. They're called lament 
psalms. Um, there's lots of scholarly work out there on lament, but I would recommend to you a little book by a pastor in Indiana um, named Mark of Rogop, and the book is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And it, basically, in the book, he argues that anybody can complain, but it takes a Christian to lament, and it takes faith to lament, because lament starts with complaining to God, but lament moves to trusting in God that he will keep his promises to love us. And then it moves from complaint to trust to asking God to act and to care for us in faith that he will do it. And so that's exactly what we're going to see here in the closing of Psalm 90. We've lamented, so now what? Now we ask an eternal and compassionate God for help. Uh, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days, or to number our days rightly, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's interesting that their quest is not, God, please give us more years. The answer is, make me wise. Part of becoming wise is grasping our limitations. Um, what does it mean to number our days? I think it means to, to take a correct stock. You can, you can imagine a kid, uh, you give uh, a kid uh, $10 and set them loose at the um, you know, county fair or the carnival or whatever, and you say, okay, we're going to be here for two hours. Um, don't spend it all in one place, right? And kids are, you know, it usually takes a while for them to learn that, so the first couple times they may spend it all up front. They're not taking account of how much they've got. They're just kind of like spending wildly. And... And then they come up short in the end. So I, I think to number our days means to acknowledge that I will only be alive a certain number of days. So how should I spend them? Um, to acknowledge that my abilities are limited. I can't do it all. I can't maintain relationships with all of these people on Facebook. I can't experience everything. There's a, there's a, a phenomenon in our generation called FOMO, fear of missing out. And wisdom says... I will miss out on most things. Why? Because I am limited. My time is limited. I can only do a certain number of things. And instead, we really ought to be asking ourselves, what has God given me to do with the time I have? How can I steward that little puff of life for God's glory? Verse 13, a second request. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Uh, these two verbs, return and have pity, are the two verbs that Moses used in Exodus 32 when at Mount Sinai, Israel sinned in the matter of the golden calf, and Moses steps in and, and says, God, please don't destroy them. Return or turn back and have, have pity or change course regarding your servants. Don't destroy them like they deserve. And so I think the point here is much the same. God, if you give us what we deserve, we would live a life of futility and a life of just, that would be the end, of, of sadness and of constant discipline. And yet the request is, God, would you please have compassion on us? Believing that he will. Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he knows what we're made of, he remembers that we are dust. Um, 
If at the start of this new year you are weighted down with the guilt of last year, the accumulated frustration of repeated sin struggles, what do you do this year? You give up? Try some new angle? I would say the starting place would be to cry out to, compa- cry out to your compassionate Father. And this is going to connect us with the next request. Third, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This phrase, steadfast love, is all over the Old Testament. And it's a combination of the idea of love or caring for somebody and the idea of loyalty or uh, something that is promised or covenanted. It's the kind of love that God loves us with when he has promised to do it. I think ideally it's the kind of love that we show when we keep a promise to someone else, like to a spouse. I love you because I told you I would, no matter what. And so God has always covenanted himself out of grace, out of kindness, to us. Um, And so God's covenant love lays a foundation for a life of joy for God's people, even amid our mortality and suffering. Every time that we observe the Lord's table, Um, we can think about Jesus' words, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? God has promised himself to us because of Jesus' work. And so this gets at a question, when life is hard, and I know that death awaits me, someday God will lead me to a point of death, does God still love me? Now the answer is yes. And we don't have time to go through this at length, but you remember... Jesus, who had never sinned, came and lived under our curse. He didn't earn it, but he lived under it. He lived in sickness and tiredness and, and uh, on the eve of crucifixion. Joe, Jesus had taught, the Father loves the Son. Jesus agonized in prayer and asked the Father, is there any other way? Can I avoid death? What was the Father's answer to that prayer? No. The Father led him through death, and Jesus went, giving himself willingly for us. He defeated death, removing its sting of condemnation. And so my point is that Jesus goes before us. He has shared our curse. He goes before us through death, and he will lead all those who trust in him out the other side to resurrection. Um, Verse 15. Fourth request, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Um, Again, for Moses' generation, I I think they'd seen a lot of years of hardship and discipline. And so maybe this seems like a bold request, saying, God, you've brought us through hard things. Would you please bless us as much as you have brought us through difficult things? It seems like a bold request for God to do that math. And yet, it's a request made in faith. And I think Moses here has an eye toward eternity, knowing that in the balance of eternity, God's blessings will so vastly outnumber the difficulties that we go here, go through here. Like Paul said, the present suffering is nothing to be compared with the glory that will follow. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And I think here, uh, what Moses is helping us see is that acknowledging our weakness 
puts us in a great place to pray, to ask God to do what we cannot do, and to show himself to us and to our children. And verse 17, the sixth request. Let the favor or the kindness or the grace of our Lord, of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As we face the brevity and frailty of life earlier in the psalm, it might be tempting for us to conclude that life doesn't matter. Um, Maybe we would say, in a cynical way, life stinks, then you die, so anything I do here doesn't matter. Or maybe with the more spiritual version would be, well, everything that matters is in eternity, and therefore what happens in this life doesn't matter. But neither of those is true. Yes, all that is lasting will be found in eternity, but what we do in this life matters too. And God cares not just about the next life, but about our actions, and he cares about our welfare in this life as well. He does not intend for us to have a a depressing life of futility and feel like like we're only spinning our our wheels. Um, Verse 17 teaches us to pray that God would make our earthly efforts for his glory meaningful. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 15 that he appointed us that we would go and bear fruit and that that fruit would last. And that's the idea of establishing the work of our hands. God, would you cause our work to be successful? Would it, would it last and mean something? And so we should pray that our discipleship efforts here at, at our church would have lasting fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. We should pray that our care for our spouses and our children would glorify God by reflecting the character of Jesus to them. We should pray even that our efforts at work, in secular work, would be means by which God graciously cares for people in our community and in our world, the just and the unjust on which he sends his reign, and to that end that our efforts would succeed, that God would be glorified in our work. And so this is Psalm 90. I was thinking, um, as we wrap up here, Pollyanna uh, Pollyanna, you know, if you've read the book or um, seen the movie, um, she's always kind of trying to make the best of things and playing this little imaginary game where you just try to eh, make something good out of bad situations. And after a while, that gets really hollow. It's kind of annoying because we know that it's not really grappling with reality. Wisdom admits that life is often... It seems short, messy, plagued with suffering. Sometimes it seems of little significance. But wisdom also knows that there's more to the story, and that to end in despair or just to be cynical and cranky would be foolish. In order to be wise this year, we need to do three things. We need to consider God's bigness. We need to consider our smallness. And we need to not be afraid to pray about everything. 
And if somewhere in there you became cynical or despaired or just thought, well, that was a depressing psalm, then go back to step one and rinse and repeat. Consider God's bigness, his character, his steadfast love, the God who is called home, right? The eternal God who is unchanging regardless of what happens in my life. You go back to step one, and then we proceed to step two, and then step three. So, um, a couple thoughts, a couple questions. What can you do to get a bigger view of God this year? We talked about that um, last week uh, under Pastor Dan. Seeing all of his eternality and compassion are critical if you're going to process what's coming this year. Um, Are there areas of your life which are marked by franticness because you've not wisely reckoned with your limitations? Are there areas of your life marked by fear because you're trying to control things that you ought to be giving to God in prayer? Are there areas of your life where you've foolishly been trying to pour your effort into your own little kingdom building or into your own glory when your glory is going to disappear in a poof? Um, I I think of um, John Piper. I think this is the, the gist of his book, This Momentary Marriage, um, someday, uh, just to think of how this might apply to marriage, someday I'm going to die, and or maybe Sarah will die first, and our marriage will be ended, which means that our marriage, while permanent in this life, is a temporary arrangement. I've been assigned her by God to care for her, to love her, to treat her with dignity, until... She's at the feet of Jesus. She's not mine to do with whatever I want or to demand of whatever I want, that she serve me and serve my agenda. Although, of course, God calls men to lead and, and women to uh, join in that task, but join in the, in the task of, of, uh, uh, by submitting and, and serving. And, um, but what I, I think... It's a good example of how reckoning with my mortality changes the way that I view my spouse. And it should color everything that I, all of my interactions with her, okay? So we need to consider God's bigness, our smallness, and not be afraid to pray about everything. May the Lord give us grace this year, not to place our hope in our own strength, but in our eternal and compassionate God. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again. Lord, we confess that we have no reason to claim your grace other than that Jesus died for our sins. So, Lord, regardless of our weakness and our failures, Lord, we want to keep coming back to you and not being afraid to ask for your help amid the difficulty and shortness of life. Lord, I I confess that if, if we have left this psalm and thought it was depressing, then I have failed to preach it correctly because it produces joy and gladness all of our days. And years of, of Christians who have been through suffering and death and persecution, as we read their memoirs and and their lives, they lived lives full of joy and served with joy because they saw you for who you really were. 
And so, Lord, I pray that a, a, a big vision of you would overshadow our days, that we would glorify you in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.